Cool Pro Podcast, Episode 6. Today we have Purdue professor Chip Blatchley, who talks about disinfection byproducts, how they're created, and what to expect. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Cool Pro Podcast. This is Michelle Cavanaugh and my co-host. Dave Rockwell. Hey, Dave. Hi. We have a great show today because I've known... I call you Chip, and I'm going to ask you where Chip came from, Chip, because I know, but it's Ernest Chip Lashley III. He is a professor in environmental engineering in the School of Civil Engineering at Purdue University. I've known him for quite some time because he came and um, talked about his research results at the World Aquatic Health Conference, and so I've known him, gosh, 10 years now. So we're excited to have you on, Chip, and tell me where Chip came from, first of all. Oh, it's a family story. Um, my parents <laughs> named me after my father and my grandfather, but then they quickly decided that maybe it'd be better to not call me Ernest. So they, a family friend suggested, why don't you just call him Chip? So they did. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Yes. So can you just give us a little bit about your background, Chip, because some people may not know who you are, and I would just let, like them to know who, you know, what kind of research you're doing and how you really have a connection to the aquatics industry. Sure. So I've been involved in um, environmental engineering, specifically dealing with what are called physical chemical processes. So that basically means that I deal with water treatment and, you know, just kind of looking back in my career, a lot of it has focused on, um, let's say, disinfection applications using chlorine, UV, ozone, whatever. Um, and I was a swimmer in high school and prior to that, although never very good at it, but um, so I certainly was familiar with swimming. And during the course of the research that we were conducting, probably 20 years ago, I was contacted by some people in the swimming industry who asked, would I be interested in doing some research related to swimming? And I said, yeah. And um, as is the case with most research projects, you end up answering some questions and opening a whole bunch of others. And that's pretty much how it played out and how it continues to play out. So. So we <clears throat> spoke with uh, Roy Vore a couple of weeks ago, who calls himself the germ guy. Um, if we were going to call you something, it would probably be the DBP guy. Is that um, true? I, or maybe the anti-germ guy. So I, um, so my, I'm not a microbiologist. I'm an engineer. I, um, you know, I use chemistry a lot more than the other physical sciences. Um, I don't, I'm, again, I'm not a microbiologist, but I'm pretty good at killing microorganisms or telling people how to do so. Uh, but we also, in addition to the disinfection side of things, meaning inactivating microbial pathogens, we also spend a fair amount of time investigating the chemistry that results from that. And so, yeah, we do a fair amount of work that's related to disinfection byproducts, especially the volatile disinfection byproducts. Right. And that's a kind of a maybe a little bit neglected on the service side of things. Um, <clears throat> I keep going back to uh, Water Quality and Health Council cites the Mason-Dixon study that came out about 10 years or so ago. And basically what, it's, what it was is people's dominant memory of summer. Uh, the majority of people in kind of in my age group, the dominant memory of summer is the smell of chlorine in a swimming pool. And so basically their, their dominant memory of summer is a poorly treated swimming pool. Sure. Yeah, well, so that, again, it gets right back to the volatile chemicals because obviously if they're not volatile, you won't smell them, so. Yeah. So, There's a misconception that if you smell chlorine, then that means the pool is properly maintained, which as we all know, is not true. 
So. Well, it means there's chlorine in the pool, but <laughs> well, actually what it means is that there's trichloramine in the pool, but okay. Anyway, that's another story. Right. We'll to get to that. I've, I've been reading an article that you wrote uh, last June uh, about uh, some studies you're doing on indoor pools. And um, I always kind of had it in my mind that, that the, um, the results of uh, the illnesses caused by disinfe disinfection byproducts were kind of chronic long-term type of things, but there's actually instances where people went right to the hospital after swimming in a really badly chlorinated pool. Yeah, there are, I mean, there are a few compounds that are generated as volatile disinfection byproducts that can cause that sort of effect. So um, well, I'm not quite sure if trichloramine will do that. It doesn't have the reputation for being sort of an acute toxin, uh, but Cyanogen chloride is a volatile disinfection byproduct that is very toxic. It basically is chlorinated cyanide. So, I mean, do the math. It's not hard to figure out that that's a pretty toxic compound. And th there are reports that I have seen and heard just anecdotally of people becoming ill on the pool deck, having to be carried out of the pool, um, possibly to a hospital, but certainly to a place where they can get fresh air. And usually that restores them back to, you know, more or less complete, you know, um, complete health. Um, but it is sort of a response that is consistent with cyanogen chloride poisoning. The problem with cyanogen chloride, aside from the fact that it's really toxic, is that you need some fairly specialized instrumentation to be able to measure it, either in water or certainly in air. And that instrumentation is generally not available on a pool deck. So... People don't, you know, you could have the symptoms that are consistent with cyanogen chloride poisoning, but it's pretty unusual, in fact, rare, I would say, that you would have instrumentation that would be available to prove that, in fact, the cyanogen chloride was present at a concentration high enough to do that sort of damage. Um, we, interestingly, we, uh, or perhaps interestingly, a little bit scary also, we recently completed an experiment in our lab where we discovered another compound that is closely related. It's just called cyanogen itself. And basically cyanogen is two cyanide molecules joined to each other. So again, you can imagine that that's not a very friendly compound. It's very toxic. It's also pretty volatile and we did observe it. Now, the problem that we have is that we, the conditions of this experiment that we conducted were pretty extreme. And we did that intentionally to make things easy to measure. We had no expectation or even clue that this chemical would be formed, but it appears to have been formed uh, in pools. And it's also consistent with this, this uh, acute poisoning issue that I just described. It's possible that it could be a contributor to that sort of behavior. Uh, so those are certainly two compounds that we've run across that could yield that sort of behavior, and especially in indoor swimming pool settings, not so much in outdoor pools. So, and, and of course, uh, in the pool service world, our, our tests are very nonspecific. We, we test uh, free chlorine, we, we test total chlorine. Mm -hmm. We have total, uh, we have uh, combined chlorine in the water. That's all we know, that it's just some form of, of uh, chloramines, but not, not, are they really the dangerous kind or is it just the unpleasant to smell kind? Yeah, um, so that's that's sort of uh, just sort of the reality of water testing. Again, to be able to determine 
you know, what compounds are actually responsible for this, you need some pretty high-end equipment. And again, that just doesn't show up on pool decks very often. Um, so the probably you're doing this using a colorimetric measurement using DPD or something like that, that most people use. And so, I mean, it does provide useful information, but we know that there's quite a bit of interference that is common in the DPD test. Uh, so, you know, the difference between the total and the free signal is oftentimes used to represent the combined chlorine that's present in water. And that combined chlorine signal we know is really attributable to the inorganic chloramines, meaning mono, di, and trichloramine, but also organic chloramines. But again, at least with the conventional DPD test, you have no way of differentiating those things, at least not conveniently. So it's, you know, it's just one of those things that, you know, it is what it is. We have to deal with the measurements that are available. So can you maybe uh, help us out with just a kind of a thumbnail sketch of how chloramines are formed in the water and, and maybe some of the steps that a pool service tech or someone caring for a, a residential or light commercial pool, what would be some steps we can take to prevent them? Sure, I can try. Um, in terms of the formation, so we've done experiments with individual compounds that are known to be constituents of human urine and human sweat. And that's where most of these precursors come from. So we've looked at you know experiments involving urea or creatinine, uric acid, various amino acids. These are things that just, we know that they're present in those body fluids, urine and sweat. So when we do these experiments with these individual compounds, we're able to understand the fundamental chemistry that's responsible for their behavior. And we're also able to identify and quantify the products of those reactions. So in a general sense, it is these nitrogen containing compounds that are parts of, or they're important components of these human body fluids of urine and sweat that react with chlorine to generate the volatile disinfection byproducts. And the ones that are perhaps most interesting all contain nitrogen. Um, so uh, the, in the inorganic chloramines, mono, di, and trichloramine, um, and obviously they contain nitrogen, cyanogen chloride. There's another one called dichloroacetonitrile. There's another chemical called um, dichloromethylamine. So these are all nitrogen-containing compounds that happen to be volatile, and they all originate by reactions between constituents of the human body fluids and chlorine. Um, similar reactions probably take place with bromine. There's much less known about, uh, for example, the reactions between those constituents and ozone. Um, but I mean, clearly there are reactions taking place and the, the byproducts of those reactions are gonna be different, clearly. Uh, in terms of you know, what can be done, uh, there's, a, there's several strategies. Best strategy is get people to you know, use proper hygiene when they use the yep. pool. You know, that's, that's really a question of you know, changing human behavior. And we as a species are not very good at changing our behavior, even when, you know, even when we know it would be good for us and those around us. Just use the example of smoking, you know, where people have known for a long time that smoking or even secondhand smoke are, you know, clearly detrimental to human health. And yet it took pretty extreme measures and a lot of time and a lot of just sort of beating on people to get them to change their behavior. Um, yep. I'm not quite sure how you would do that in swimming pools, getting people to stop peeing in the pool or take a shower before they get into a pool. But both of those things clearly make a difference. And in pools where, uh, you know, people have been convinced to improve their hygiene habits, water quality and air quality improve directly. 
after that, then, you know, the, there's several other questions about, you know, what else could be done from, let's say, a process perspective about improving water quality and by extension air quality, especially in indoor pools. So there's several things I can think of. So one is um, there are secondary oxidants that are used or alternative oxidants that are used. And those can yield benefits in terms of, you know, either breaking down those volatile disinfection byproducts or preventing their formation in the first place. Um, and among those, um, um, let's see, so ozone is one. Um, UV is really not an oxidizing process, but it promotes reactions that lead to oxidation. So UV is also another candidate there. Um, there are some secondary oxidants that are used in pools. Um, and I'm blanking on the names of them right persulfate, now. Uh, potassium. Yeah, so monopersulfate seems to work pretty well as well. Um, um, so then another strategy that uh, is used in Western Europe um, and a little bit in the United States is to use what's called an air stripper. So as part of the recirculation system of a pool, if you install an air stripper, basically what that does is it's going to remove, physically remove the volatile chemicals from the water in a space other than the airspace above the pool and exhaust those volatile chemicals somewhere other than the airspace above the pool. So if you were to incorporate an air stripper as part of the recirculation system where water treatment normally takes place and then vent the off gas from that air stripper to some area other than the pool space itself, that could also improve air quality and water quality by selectively removing the volatile chemicals. So that's what those processes are designed to do. So those processes are pretty simple to design. They're pretty easy to, to implement as well. They do have some drawbacks. Um, for example, with air stripping, you will strip volatile chemicals, but those chemicals will include, for example, CO2, which functions as an acid. raise the pH. Yeah, exactly. So you have to counteract that with other chemical addition. You'll also lose some heat by doing that. So that needs to also be accounted for. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a question of how do you balance these things? Right. Well, can, I, let me, can I ask you something about that? Because uh, our ozone systems are big ones. We use a contact tank at, at the equipment pad where the, um, the, the ozone gas bubbles up and, and the big bubbles are removed. Would the, is that gonna remove, if there are those type of compounds, are they gonna bubble out too? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much they will, you know, so when, if we back up a little bit, if you consider an air stripper and how it's designed, there's lots of different methods by which volatile chemicals can be stripped from water. Pretty much what you need to do is to bring a gas, usually air, in contact with that water. You can do that using a bubble contactor. You can use that by, or you can do that also by a common um, air stripping geometry as a tower where you would have some packing in there and what you would do is distribute the water over that packing using what amounts to a shower nozzle and then the water sort of dribbles down through that packing and you blow air in the opposite direction and that air will then come into contact with the water which is now spread as a thin film throughout that tower and that that sort of approach is pretty effective at removing things so you know a bubble contactor has it's a different way of bringing air or gas and air, I'm sorry, gas and water into contact with each other. But yeah, certainly it would result in some stripping of those volatile chemicals. Are these devices commercially available right now? I mean, is there a distributor for them that we can? 
Yeah, I mean, air stripping devices certainly are available commercially. I don't know uh, if they're available at the size that would be relevant for a swimming pool in the United States. I'm pretty sure they are available for that purpose in Western Europe. And I think if people started using them, the market would certainly show up. So, um, because they are a pretty effective technology. And what I've seen and heard about the use of air strippers, especially in Western Europe, is that they're pretty effective and that people seem to like them. But again, you have to be willing to deal with sort of the downside of using those things of stripping off yeah. the, the heat. And then you'd have- I was, Can I ask a question before you move on, Dave? I was gonna say, sure. if you guys hear rain, by the way, it's raining cats and dogs here. So I hope that's not impacting the That's sound quality here, but right? when we talk about changing behaviors, Chip, don't you think what's going on in the country right now could be a potential to change behavior about showering before you get in the pool and potentially not peeing in the pool and things like that? Because I think it's real, this whole virus, you know, pandemic is definitely going to, I believe, change our behavior forever. Don't. Yeah. I, I mean, it's going to, I don't know. I'm not a sociologist, nor am I a right. microbiologist. So you're getting into an area <laughs> that I don't really understand, but I, I do have to believe that um, social behaviors are going to change. I mean, I, I suspect you have experienced things that are similar to what I'm experiencing where, you know, my family connects now through Zoom or, you know, something like that. And, you know, pretty much the only person I have direct contact with is my wife. Um, and, you know, our, our dog is pretty happy about that because our dog spends a lot of time <laughs> with us now, a lot more than she would have. But um, you know, clearly social social changes have been forced on us here, and I think that probably will. I mean, I think you're right. I think that probably will result in some other social changes. Uh, you know, hopefully people will be more considerate of the others that are around them in the future. And, you know, one, uh, let's say, measure of that would be use of proper hygiene in pools. So, yeah, I don't know, but we'll see. People are sure thinking a lot more in terms of hygiene and and protecting each other from each other's germs. So we might be able to piggyback off that. I hope to be able to send a message like that out without completely freaking people out and making them not want to swim in a yeah. community pool. Yeah, but, I mean, that's an important balance as well. You know, it's like, I mean, I've told several people that I could, I could scare them out of a pool, which is clearly not my objective. You know, I, I'm, I am still a swimmer. I'm slower than ever. But I do like to hop in the pool when I can. And it's that's actually one of the unfortunate things about this current situation is that all the public pools are closed. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, my goal really is to provide the safest possible swimming environment. And so and I yeah. think one way of getting there is to understand really the, the science behind it. So, uh, you know, that's where I'm hoping to make a contribution. So uh, well, how does... Um the way a pool is, the way chlorine is administered to a pool affect uh, the chloramine formation. You consider an average backyard pool, it's dosed with all the chlorine for an entire week in one visit. And so you have a really high spike when, when the pool guy leaves and almost no chlorine or sometimes an actual negative uh, oxidative load by the time he comes back. Um, that would seem to me like a perfect recipe for, for forming chloramines. Um, yeah, it's a recipe. <laughs> I'm not sure how perfect it is. I mean, it would be much better, I think, to maintain a steady concentration if that's possible. Um, the problem that you're describing is one where you're getting, you know, sort of pulses of chlorine, I guess, every week or so, something like that. Yeah. And, 
and getting probably something that looks like more or less exponential decay of that chlorine through the period of time until the next visit. Um, I, if that's an indoor pool, I would be concerned for the first couple days about what's going on because it is yeah. under these, you know, I would consider that to be a fairly extreme condition. I mean, what's the typical uh, chlorine residual at the beginning of this cycle? Well, um, usually, they, they usually like to keep between two and five parts per million of chlorine in the pool. Okay. Um, the, the trick is when, or the, where it becomes tricky is when people actually start swimming. You have the weekend pool party and within an hour the, the chlorine's used up and it doesn't get replenished. Yeah, that's, so I mean the balance that you have to strike is that on, you know, at the beginning of the week when the chlorine concentration is high, then you're going to be generating these disinfection byproducts. If it's, you know, in the range of three to five milligrams per liter, that's high, but it's not terrible. I mean, I've heard of pools operating higher than that. And these conditions that I described in the experiment that I mentioned a few minutes ago, where we generated cyanogen, actually pretty high concentrations, were much higher than that. So it's, you know, it's higher than a let's say a shock chlorination condition that's sometimes used in pools. But um, you know, I, I would expect that that is, um, you know, as you described, that is sort of the recipe for generation of not just the chloramines but the volatile disinfection byproducts is. You know, you load up a pool with chlorine and then put a whole bunch of people in it, then you're, you, you're providing everything that you need to generate a lot of these disinfection byproducts. On the other end, when the chlorine concentration gets low, then I'm more concerned about microbiology. Chemistry is really not going to be an issue for you, but microbiology certainly could be. And the, you know, the reports of recreational water illness that are associated with microbial pathogens uh, with the exception of cryptosporidium parvum, which really just sort of laughs at chlorine, it's really not affected by it at all. When you look at the other microbial pathogens that cause these diseases, they almost always show up when there's little or no chlorine in the pool. So if the cool, pool is properly chlorinated, you can pretty much eliminate the vast majority of the microbial pathogens that could cause disease, the exception being cryptosporidium. Um, so if you're if a pool is being deprived of chlorine and then there's a lot of people in it, then you know the microbiology is not going to be very friendly. Yeah, and that the other thing is that's uh, your HOA pool, your average hotel pool on a midway through a Saturday afternoon. They don't have a dosing system that's designed to keep up, and and there there's people swimming with no chlorine in the pool in a lot of places. It's a lot more frequent than you'd like to think. Uh, well, I'm glad you told me that. I won't be swimming in those pools. <laughs> that was You should have asked the question before that. You were going to yeah, ask the question, Dave. We've had, we've had a survey question that we've talked to everybody we've interviewed, whether they're in the industry or out. Um, and, and it's basically on a, zero, uh, a scale of zero to one to ten, zero to ten, how likely are you to jump in the hotel pool when you're traveling uh, and, and actually use it? And uh, so... Zero means no way, and 10 means, yeah, sure, any chance I get. I'm pretty close to zero. Um, I mean, the pool that I do swim in when it's open is, it's, um, I mean, it's, first of all, it's a beautiful pool. It's at the university where I work. And right. The people who take care of that pool, they really take care of it. They're passionate about their work. And we, we've had the good, fortunate, good fortune to work with them on a number of experiments. They've opened up their pool for us to do a lot of our experiments 
in there. So I know sort of the gory details of this pool, how it's operated and how good the water and air quality are because we measure it all the time in there. Right. So I'm, you know, I'm very happy to swim in that pool because I know it's safe. Um, but I mean, the story that you're describing right here or mm -hmm. the circumstances that you're describing right here um, are really not very friendly, you know, so I... Um, so the, sorry, some of the work that you won't be using your pool. <laughs> <laughs> we some understand. Work, we understand, Chip. Believe me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, some of the work you're doing right now about disinfe disinfection byproducts is for the Model Aquatic Health Code. Uh, is, is there? Do you hope to have some things that that will come out of this that might help pools and that are in that situation? Yeah. I mean, one of the projects that we're working on right now is looking at air quality in indoor pools and the factors that affect air quality. So, you know, our hope is that we're going to be able to provide guidance on how indoor pool facilities should be operated to maintain appropriate air quality. So, you know, I mentioned the pool where I swim regularly, they do operate. I mean, it's, that's, that's on the, let's say the upper end of the spectrum of how pools should be operated. It's not perfect and there's room for improvement there. Uh, but they're interested in, you know, how could they improve their air quality? And again, more broadly, what we're hoping to do in this study is to provide guidance to the community mm -hmm. through the Model Aquatic Health Code about how these facilities should be designed and operated so as to maintain appropriate air quality. And we want to use science to back that up. It's not, you know, we're not trying to guess here. We're trying to use right. what we measure and what we understand about the physics and chemistry that really govern the behavior of these systems. So, and the hope is that that would trickle down from the, the high-end aquatic facilities down into your average indoor motel pool and... Yeah, I mean, my hope is that it becomes a part of regular practice, you know, it's so that, and there's really, you know, a couple of different sets of questions, you know, one set of questions is how do you deal with an existing facility? What, what would you change about how that facility is operated so as to maintain appropriate air quality? But then looking forward, then you need to ask questions about, well, how should I design this thing mm -hmm. so that, you know, I can... You know, it's all, you know, retrofitting an existing system with other things is, there's usually problems associated with that. It's not a simple thing to do, although it usually can be done. Um, and if, but if, if, if the design itself were conducted in a manner where these measures were taken intentionally and incorporated intentionally as part of that design process, then, you know, my guess is that the system will work more seamlessly in the future. So, I mean, I hope both things are possible with what we recommend. Yeah. What is normally the biggest design issue with those indoor pools, Chip? Is it just not being able to get circulate the air through the way you talked about? Is that the biggest issue? Besides the behavioral component we talked about with peeing in the pool and that type of thing, what's the biggest design issue that you see? I'm not sure that I'm comfortable identifying the biggest. I gotcha. I mean, yeah. I think we, we have a pretty good idea of the factors that affect air quality. So, you know, clearly the hygiene side, side of things is going to be pretty important water quality and air quality are directly linked. So anything yeah. we do to water chemistry by treatment or whatever will have a direct consequence on air quality. How the air is circulated within the system is also gonna play a role. The extent of mixing within the air phase and the liquid phase. Um, it turns out that the, the activities of the swimmers themselves play a really important role in these indoor pools. Uh, so, I mean, the worst conditions for indoor air quality in these facilities are where you have, you know, a boatload of people in there and they're all swimming. 
you know, so that's, that's bad on two ends. Well, maybe three. Uh, first of all, they're in the pool and that means they're introducing these precursors following their poor hygiene habits. Or even if they do follow good hygiene habits, swimmers sweat while they're in a pool. And so there is some of this um, body fluid that is going to be released even under a pool where people are doing, you know, the right thing. Um, but, you know, again, if they do the right thing, then we can cut down on the amount of body fluid that's introduced to a pool. But in addition to that, you know, if you think about what a swimmer is doing, they're, if they're, especially if they're doing lap swimming, they're going back and forth and they're imparting mechanical energy on the water right near the air water surface. That promotes transfer of volatile chemicals from the water to the air. And the more swimmers you stick in the water, the more you're going to promote that transfer. So as part of this project that I mentioned a minute ago, we're developing a model to simulate that behavior. And what we want to do is to use that model to ask sort of what if questions. So, you know, what if you stick 200 swimmers in this pool and you have this particular water chemistry, what does that imply for, you know, the air quality in this system as the HVAC system is operated? And then you could ask another question, okay, what do I need to do um, to this system to improve the air quality given those circumstances and get it down, get the air quality down to something that conforms to like World Health Organization standards for air quality. So anyway, that's one of the things that we um, are working on as part of this project and that we want to make available for people to use. And so with the, with the people we're talking to today on the service end of things, we can't really go into a, a facility to say we're going to take over an account servicing a, a hotel pool that has an indoor pool. Um, we can't go in there and tell them, well, you got to completely re-engineer your air handling system. And, but there, there are going to be some things that we can do and that we can recommend. Um, what, what are some things that you would say where would be some good starting points for us? Uh, well, I mean, if they want to improve water and air quality, they're obviously going to have to change some things. So one of the things they could change would be their HVAC system. Another would be how they treat their water. Um, and there's a, a number of different options that are available there. Um, I, you know, the, the hardest of the, 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 perhaps the most important and also the hardest of these things to change is the human element, you know, the human social behavior, hygiene. That's the, the hardest one to change, but it is, you know, in some respects, it's the easiest one to change. I mean, it's, you know, it's just a question of people, you know, using the restroom and taking a shower, um, which isn't that difficult to do and doesn't involve any engineering controls or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the problem is it involves humans. So, <laughs> so getting people to, you know, do the obvious thing is sometimes a difficult thing to do. So and we're all human. We're all guilty of that. So. Um, would do a dosing system that can keep up with the bather load so that rather than mm -hmm. these spikes and chlorine up and down, um, would that be something you'd consider a, a must or a great place to start? Um, well, I'm not in a position to say must. So I mean, I, but I certainly could recommend that sort of thing. And I do think that it would yield benefits both in terms of chemistry and microbiology and both are important. You know, so these recreational water illnesses are linked to both chemistry and microbiology. And we, you know, in disinfection, there, there's always this sort of balance between chemistry and microbiology that we need to consider. Um, and if you were, if you had a, a dosing system that could truly keep up with the load that's imposed on it, and I recognize that these loads are really dynamic, you know, they're, you know, this, again, when we go to these 
as part of this study that we're doing right now, we intentionally go to competition pools before, during, and after large competitions because we know that that's going to be the worst conditions that this pool is likely to see in terms of water chemistry and air chemistry and probably microbiology. So, you know, the, the logic there is that if we can identify conditions that allow us to control water and air quality under these really extreme conditions, then we should have a system that would also work under less extreme conditions. So we want to try to understand those extreme conditions. So, yeah, anyway. Um, yeah. And then as far as secondary sanitation systems, UV, ozone, that type of thing, um, helping to control the, the volume of things that the chlorine has to react to, um, should, should that be something that would... I'm not would, quite sure what you mean. Could you maybe restate that? Um, well, an ozone system, for example, is going to uh, remove a lot of the organics in the, in the water that the chlorine reacts with, and it's going to mm -hmm. help give the chlorine less work to do in the water. Right. Um, would, wouldn't it be good if we started to uh, add more more systems like that and stop relying on chlorine alone as a sanitizer for, for pools. Yeah, and more broadly, I think secondary disinfectants have an important role to play. I will say that at least from my perspective, I, I think the sizing of those things is as much art as it is science at this point. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of sort of fundamental information about the reactions that take place that at least I don't understand as well as I'd like to, to be able to make you know, provide real recommendations on that. But I, I mean, there's certainly people who are using those systems and there is knowledge to be gained from that experience, even if we don't have the fundamental information. So yeah, I do think that those, those uh, systems, we call them secondary oxidants as a general category, have an important role to play. But I, I do think that we would be in a better position as an industry if we had more of this fundamental information about the basic chemistry that drives these things so that we could use that to really kind of come up with rational sizing protocols. And I, they don't really exist right now. Again, it's, I think the sizing is, at least from my perspective, is make, at least as much art as it is science, or maybe experience really more than anything else. I agree with that, yeah. It, it, it's, um... Do you have, uh, you don't have any updates at all, Chief? You're not doing any kind of research on the SARS-CoV-2 or coronavirus or any of that type of thing. Is that correct? Um, no, actually it's not. I mean, I'm not doing that research in the context of swimming pools, but you know, I, um, the research that we do in my group is again, much more general than swimming pools. Swimming oh. pools are an important application of some of the work that we do. Um, but one of the disinfectants that we spend a lot of time with is ultraviolet radiation. So UV um, turns out to be a very effective disinfectant because against a broad range of microbial pathogens. So there is, um, there is no information right now that I have seen that describes how this particular virus, the novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, how it responds to any disinfectant. I haven't seen really any quantitative information about that. Um, so I've submitted a proposal um, to, to investigate that. And I think I know of some other people who are um, pursuing more or less the same thing to look at how does UV or chlorine or ozone or whatever, how does it inactivate this virus? I, I will say that we've found, no, in, we and others have found in the literature information about other coronaviruses that are structurally very similar to this virus. 
And the information about those other coronaviruses certainly suggests that UV and chlorine and ozone should be very effective against this particular virus. This most coronaviruses, they're called, they're, they're called enveloped viruses, single-stranded RNA enveloped viruses. And so the enveloped viruses themselves are, as it turns out, they, they're fairly insidious. They've been involved in a number of pandemics, uh, including the current one. Um, but that envelope structure is really important for them. But it also seems to make these viruses somehow fragile, or at least sort of wimpy. Uh, so again, if we, if we look at other enveloped single-stranded RNA viruses that have structures that look like this current virus, then there is data on those viruses and how they respond to various disinfectants. And one of the yep. disinfectants that works really well against it is UV. So what we want to do in the work that we've proposed is to look, you know, to try to quantify this so that we know how much UV do you need to be able to inactivate, you know, four logs or five logs or whatever it is, the endpoint we're looking for, for this particular coronavirus. Similar experiments, I'm sure, are being planned by others to look at how chlorine does this, how ozone does this. And you know, so the, those chlorine, ozone, and UV are really sort of the big three in terms of disinfection processes. And if we have that information, then we'll be in a much better position to understand how to control it in various settings. But again, the, the information that I have suggests that UV should be very effective for control of this virus, whether it's in the air um, whether it's, you know, on a surface, in an aerosol, in water, pretty much anywhere, I think we can get it if we go after this. So, I mean, I, I think that's going to, it is going to be in the future, one of the measures that we use to control this coronavirus in various settings, hospitals, military facilities, airports, airplanes, right. you know, whatever. So How, the, go ahead, Dave, I'm sorry. One of the things that may come out of this is, in terms of health around a swimming pool that's neglected uh, on, on most pools is wiping down the surfaces around the pool, the deck furniture, washing the decks down more frequently, um, just increasing the level of cleanliness in general all the way around the pool. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. I mean, that's certainly going to be part of the game plan for the foreseeable future, I have to believe. So this and virus the funny part, with us for a while. The funny part when we interviewed Roy Vore is that he said people don't even use those wipes correctly. I didn't even know that there was directions or anything on the back of wipes. You assume, <laughs> you, assume you open the package, take one out and wipe stuff down. And he said, no, you have to read the directions because it does say that you have to have it, you know, the surface wet for a particular period of time or whatever, the, the actual disinfect, you know, the cloth or whatever you're using, which, yeah. you know, that was kind of a mind blower to us. I'm like, this, this isn't just an obvious thing, but apparently not. Oh, good for Roy. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, I was going to ask you, go ahead, Dave, I'm sorry. When I go to the grocery store now and I pull one of those wipes out or I carry my own now, I wrap it around the handle of the grocery cart and yeah. it the whole time. So my hands stay away. Everything I touch, I go right back to that wipe. Right back to that. Ever since your conversation with Roy, I bet. Yeah, he taught me something right there. I was going to ask, with all the great research and things that you're doing, how do people have access to that information, Chip? I know most of these service guys and probably even some of the commercial facility operators, they're not reading, you know, white papers and scientific journals or anything like that. So I know that you advise the Model Aquatic Health Code. So they probably are more familiar with the Model Aquatic Health Code than anything. Mm -hmm. But what, where can people access the information on the results of your research? 
Uh, that's I mean, the, the best place thing. is going to be the referee literature. That's where we target most of our work. And the reason that we do that is that that is sort of the highest standard for publication because, you know, before a paper is going to be published in a referee journal, it's going to be reviewed by an anonymous set of peers who have, you know, expertise in the area that relates to that paper. And, you know, they're going to provide, they're going to be the gatekeepers really on, you know, these sorts of papers to make sure that, you know, all the science was done properly and reported properly. So that's the best place to go um, because those papers, again, are the highest standard of publication. But I mean, I think um, at the World Aquatic Health Conference, most, most of the presentations, if not all of them, are recorded, right? So, and I think those yeah. are available. Um, so, I mean, those, that's another place that people can go. Um, beyond that, at least for the work that I'm involved in, I don't think we really put the work out there that much. I don't really make an effort to, you know, put any of the research results, at least recent research results on like my webpage or anything like that. I just, yeah. It's not a high priority. For yeah. Me. And you're not presenting anywhere else or do you go to other conferences that in the U S at least that people might be attending that you're presenting? Um, yeah. I mean, I go to a number of conferences. Um, there is another conference that's related to pools. It's the international pool and spa conference that's been oh, yeah. historically has been in Europe. Um, so I've, I've only been to that conference once. It was uh, last year in March in Marseille. Uh, it was, it was a great conference. I mean, it was, yeah. uh, it's a very small, very focused group of people, sort of like the World Health, Aquatic Health Conference. But I think um, sort of the, the depth of science that's presented at this other conference in Europe is uh, greater than what I often see at the World Aquatic Health Conference. So those papers, I think, also are available. Um, or I'm not sure if they recorded the presentations, but it right. might be worthwhile, you know, reaching out to the organizers of that conference. So, I mean, I, I certainly plan to go to that conference again in the future because it was a very positive experience. I have one of your presentations from 2018 at the World Aquatic Health Conference um, on our website okay. for people to view if you're a member of the California Pool and Spa Association. So I do have one of your recorded sessions out there on indoor air quality. So. Okay. Right. Yeah, and how do you think we're doing overall on indoor air quality, Chip? You know, as we as we wrap up this podcast, how do you feel overall? We've have we been improving? Do you feel like it's getting better, or it's easier to determine how to control that, or how do you feel? Where you give us a score, what would the score be? Well, I'm not sure I could evaluate any trend at this point because we've really only yeah. been looking at it in detail for just you know maybe a year or so. So I'm not sure that I'm in a position to evaluate that. Um, there's certainly room for improvement. Um, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of a harsh grader. I'm going to say sort of. A <laughs> like that. We could take it. it. We really, could take it, Chip. It really depends on the facility that you go yeah, to. Yeah, it does. And, and if I were to, you know, point out the facility where I do most of my swimming, and I can't get to it right now, but, you know, I would give them an A minus because they're, I mean, they're, they're doing two things that I think are really positive. One is that they're doing everything that's available to them right now to you know, try to optimize the system that they have. But of equal or perhaps even greater value is that they're really looking into what can they do to improve their system. So they're yeah. asking those questions and they're willing to ask those questions and listen to the hard answers that might be given to them and then take action on it. You know? So yeah. I think that sort of mentality I think is, I mean, I wish I could transfer that mentality to every, to every pool that I've come into contact with, but 
I would not say that that's necessarily a uniform mentality that exists. No, it is not. Usually, I would agree. Because usually they have, you know, 17 other things that they need to, you know, keep track of, you know, and if you, for example, if you go to a, you know, a hotel swimming pool, the person that has responsibility for that pool has many other responsibilities. Yeah. Whereas this pool where I swim, there's an entire staff that's dedicated to this facility. And that's a luxury that just doesn't exist at a lot of pools. So, I mean, the reality is that some pools are going to do better than others just because of the resources that are available to them. So, right. Um, but hopefully we can do better in the future. There's certainly room for improvement. Yes. Yeah, sure. Well, great. Well, thank you so much, Tip. I just want to tell you how much I've enjoyed, you know, getting to know you over the years. And thank you for all the wonderful research you're doing for the industry. We truly appreciate you. Likewise, and thank, thank you. you for your time and hope that your family stays healthy and safe during this crazy time. Thank but you. Uh, we are very appreciative of you. Okay. Yeah, well, thank you, Chip. Okay. Thanks. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye. A new voice in the industry, a resource for all, education for you. This is Pool Pro Podcast. Build relationships and share important news as we get ready for our next backyard adventure. Pool Pro Podcast, backyard adventures are better together. Please take a moment to share, like, and review our content with all of those that would be interested.